Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. In this episode, we look at the common law relating to privacy in England and ask, what exactly is the harm in publishing a person's private information to the world at large? Hello, we're back. I'm Tom Bennett, and I'm joined once again by Paul Ragg of the University of Leeds. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the law relating to privacy, um, particularly in the light of the case brought by Sir Cliff Richard, which was heard in the High Court earlier this year and judgment handed down this summer. It's caused us to ask the question of what constitutes the harm at the heart of our cause of action for privacy, a cause of action that we know as the tort of misuse of private information. Now, the question is an important one to English common lawyers because in civil law, in tort particularly, it's commonplace to have some harm that needs to be remedied. That's the rationale for bringing the cause of action. It's the rationale for the remedy that the court eventually gives. But when we're dealing with an invasion of privacy, we're often dealing with a type of harm that can be difficult to quantify and difficult to conceptualize. Now, the Cliff Richard case caused a disagreement between Paul and myself over the summer uh, as to the harm uh, that is suffered or the lack thereof by Sir Cliff Richard in the case. So we're going to talk a bit about that. And we're going to talk about harm and conceptualizing harm a bit more generally. And doubtless, we'll think of some more problematic cases to talk about uh, as the discussion moves along. Um, but Paul, do you want to start with a, a brief and hopefully relatively neutral summary of the Cliff Richard case? Yes, it was wrongly decided. Nice and neutral there. Yeah. No, it's... Um... We did disagree, we, and we've had, actually, I think our disagreement was very productive. Um, it resulted in some uh, excellent blog posts on uh, the Inform website, uh, and also we've produced an article. And um, the feedback I'm getting from our article, Tom, is that it's um, it's uh, it's revolutionary, because we it's not like normal articles. We set out our various positions and then we just left it to the reader to decide where they, um, where they position themselves. So it was a bit like a build your own adventure. Um, yes, indeed. It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not at all that we didn't either of us have enough to write for a full length article individually. So we just cobbled together something. Between no, us. no, it definitely no. wasn't that. It's revolutionary format. Exactly. We were thinking ahead. Um, so the facts of uh, the Cliff Richard case are, are fascinating on a number of different levels. Um, what, what we have here is uh, a police investigation um, which resulted in a raid on Sir Cliff Richard's uh, home at a time when he wasn't present. And in fact, we we find out in the case that um, Sir Cliff Richard was actually watching the events uh, live as they happened uh, on the BBC. So the, the BBC got wind of the fact that uh, Sir Cliff Richard's property was about to be 
um, raided. They, um, according to Mr. Justice Mann, um, who was very critical of this, they got quite giddy about it, got quite giddy at the prospect of outdoing their competitors. And they sent up their helicopter uh, to record the raid as it happened. And this resulted in, Mr. Justice Mann's words, this resulted in this breathless sensationalism um, as the BBC focused uh, too much on the spectacle and thought too little of, of the newsworthiness of, of this event. So what we have on in terms of the facts are um, the reporting, the live reporting of uh, a police raid into a very well-known person's uh, home uh, on the suspicion of um, non-recent sexual sexual assault. And as you say, it's the nature of the reporting that is primarily objected to in this case, right? Yes. So it's Mr. Justice... Well, it's interesting. When we think about this in terms of harm, I... I know we disagree on this, but it's, it, Mr. Justice Manns doesn't really articulate the harm to Sir Cliff Richard beyond saying, I think, beyond saying that this was outrageous, that anyone should have to suffer uh, the uh, indignity of seeing their property raided uh, in this way. So sort of one one aspect of, of the, the harm in terms of privacy, the, the part in which we disagree, of course, is that the other aspects of the harm, and in fact, I think the real basis of Sir Cliff Richard's case was that this was a harm to his reputation, that actually what upset him most was the idea that people thought he actually had committed this non-recent sexual assault, and that the live reporting in in uh, in this uh, sort of sensationalist way, just added to this sense of uh, a kind of moral wrongdoing, moral blameworthiness, uh, and that people would now band him um, in the same bracket as Jimmy Savile, etc. Yes, so perhaps it's worth um, for listeners who may not be familiar with the uh, with the law in this field, just pointing out that in a claim for misuse of private information, um, the court will proceed along a a two-stage analysis. It's really a three-stage analysis, but everyone calls it a two-stage analysis, so we'll stick with that, which is that first the court will ask whether the claimant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of the information that has been uh, taken or published. And if the court finds that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, it then moves to a, a balancing exercise where it attempts to balance proportionately the intrusion upon the claimant's privacy against the public interest in publishing the information. Now, what's really interesting about the harm point is that we expect in a tort claim that there must be an element of harm because that's how tort law works. Without harm, there is no claim. 
So it has to be in there somewhere. The question is where it, where it goes into that two-stage analysis. Uh, and what we, seen, what we seem to find in the case law is that it rears its head twice, mm. that we can consider harm at the reasonable expectation stage. Is there a reasonable expectation? Well, yes, says the claimant, because what happened to me was harmful. Yeah. And then again, at the proportionality stage, is there harm here? Well, yes, says the claimant, because the harm that I suffered was disproportionate to the public benefit. Yeah. So it comes in twice. Yeah. Um, now, the point that you've made, Paul, about uh, this being uh, about harm to reputation rather than harm to privacy is, uh, to my mind, mostly relevant to the first stage, whether this is a reasonable expectation of privacy or whether this is a completely different type of claim. Yeah. Um, now, you've, you, the issue that you take is, it, I take it to be broadly similar to the issue that, that arose in the case uh, a few years ago involving the footballer John Terry, now recently retired, of course. Um, now he brought a claim uh, in misuse of private information uh, in respect of newspaper articles alleging an extramarital affair. And the claim did not succeed. The judge, Mr. Justice Tugendhat, held that really what Terry was trying to do was protect his reputation, particularly his commercial reputation, which uh, enabled him to make quite a lot of money out of advertising and sponsorship. Um, and that this was the real substance of the claim. And as such, it should have been brought in defamation, to which different rules apply. Uh, and we don't need to go into those rules now, but the point is it was a claim that could could have succeeded in privacy but could not succeed in defamation. And since he decided it was really a defamation claim, it didn't succeed. Now, if I understand you rightly, that's essentially what you're saying about the Cliff Richard case. Yes. And, and the reason that we disagree uh, – well, I've, there are two reasons we disagree and the reasons that I have for disagreeing with you. The first is that – the defamation point, harm to reputation, is one that I think has been dealt with by European Court of Human Rights and a little bit by our own courts, though they've not looked at it in enough detail yet, which is that reputation is part of the Article 8 European Convention on Human Rights right to private life. One's private life comprises a number of elements, and one of those is one's reputation. Harm to one's reputation impinges upon one's private life and one's ability to conduct one's private life in a manner of one's choosing to act autonomously and so forth. So uh, the first point is that I, I don't see anything like such a clear-cut distinction between defamation on the one hand, traducement of reputation, and invasion of privacy, as I think you see. Yes. And I think I, the way that I sort of interpret our disagreement, which I think is an important one, um, is that your position is doctrinally um, unimpeachable. You're absolutely right. This is what the case law says. Mine is slightly, a slightly more conceptual position because I'm not convinced of the connection 
between reputation and privacy in the Cliff Richard case. So I think I can accept there will be circumstances in which one's reputation and an attack on one's reputation does involve private issues. So, for example, if a newspaper was to attack uh, someone's um, family, I was going to say credentials, I don't even know what credentials would mean in this context. But if someone was to attack another person and say, well, they're not a family man, they hold themselves out as being a family man, but they're not a family man, they're not a good father, they're not a good husband or whatever. I can see that 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 attacks one's reputation, but it's a reputation that's grounded essentially in privacy. This I struggled with to see how the attack here on reputation is grounded in privacy norms. And it might just be my own intellectual failings that explain this, but I can't I can't quite see it. And I couldn't see it in the judgment. I would agree with you that the judgment doesn't get into anything like the detail on this that would be desirable in terms of explaining that connection between the two. I'm not sure the judgment even really acknowledges the connection between the two. Um, and the fact that one could conceptualize what's going on here as is, is two distinct interests, one yeah. in reputation and one in, in, in privacy. Yeah. Um, I think it, the, the, the point that I would make is it comes down to how one conceptualizes privacy as yeah. an interest. Yeah. And if one takes the view that it is, in, at least in large part, to do with respect for a person's autonomy, yeah. then to introduce a reputation impinges upon that autonomy pretty much inherently, that there will be things one can no longer do, having suffered a traducement to reputation. There will be choices not open to that individual anymore that would have been open before. And we're not talking about truthful or justified traducement of reputation. We're talking about untrue things being said about a person. Um, even if we were to say, well, autonomy is lost up until the point where the reputational harm is corrected and one has an apology or a, a correcting statement issued that vindicates the reputation, mm. the mere fact that the claimant has had to take steps to vindicate the reputation, they've been forced down that route. It's not an entirely free choice. Yeah. If you want to proceed with your life autonomously, you must pursue some sort of redress. And that itself is an infringement of autonomy. Now, it might not be as serious an infringement of autonomy uh, uh, as, as, uh, as has been alleged. It might, not, might not be the kind that ought to be remedied with uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds in damages. But I think there is an infringement of autonomy there. And that, that's where I would see the connection. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, you, you've already articulated this in much more sophisticated language than the, the decision does, and that's incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, I'm, I'd still press further on that point, though, because I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. Again, doctrinally, 
and conceptually we think of privacy in terms of individual autonomy and we think about it in terms of dignity now but my difficulty with um, that analysis when we are applying autonomy in its sort of broadest sense as the ability to do as we want to do or the ability not to do as we want to do is that we're then sort of framing autonomy as essentially liberty we're saying this is the ability to live freely freely in a democratic society or freely in any kind of society and my difficulty with that is that we begin to remove almost entirely the sense of privacy from our equation and we also subsume although this is more of a doctrinal point but we also subsume defamation within privacy and so whilst I uh, agree with you in the, the way that you explained autonomy there was incredibly helpful but, but my concern is that it's got to be autonomy and dignity rooted in this sense of privacy and so we mean further elucidation of what exactly we mean by a, a private sense of autonomy or a private sense of dignity that's very interesting what you're saying there um it reminds me of uh, uh of a point that's made by the uh, american writer daniel solov about the risks of uh, conceptualizations of privacy becoming over-inclusive that is too broad Mm. And so broad that, well, autonomy can mean liberty generally. Yeah. And at the point at which it means liberty generally, then what's distinct about privacy as opposed to any other personality interest or liberty-based yeah. interest? Um, it's a point also that, uh, that Richard Kay makes in, in, in the context of, um, in particular in the context of the European Convention on Human Rights in Article 8. Um and he said, you know, that, that, that if Article 8 is interpreted broadly, we could end up in a situation where the law requires everybody um, to respect everybody else's dignity all of the time, whatever happens. Uh, and there are no firm guidelines uh, by which we can regulate our behavior. We just have to generally try to look out for people's um people's liberty and, and, and autonomy based interests um, which I think is a, a, a an important point um, the, the, the second point that I, that I that I want to make about um, the distinction between reputation and privacy is is uh, perhaps at a, a, a another level of abstraction um, and it's a point that's um, it's made by professor Eric Deschemaker um, he, he makes it in a, a point, a point in an article in the Journal of Media Law in 2015, um, when he talks about the difference between conceptualizing harm in what he calls a, a unipolar fashion uh, and in a bipolar fashion. Now, in a bipolar conception of harm, then we um, we distinguish the harm that is suffered from the wrongful act that inflicts that harm. We say first there is a wrongful act and then there is harm consequent upon that wrongful act. Mm. 
And this is quite familiar to lawyers. It's the sort of thing that happens in tort law all the time. And I think it's conditioned the way that we think about tort law, especially in, um, in English-style common law systems that, that, that have tort claims. But another way to conceptualize the harm would be to say, well, the harm and the wrongful act are the same thing. The wrongful act in an invasion of privacy is to invade a person's privacy. And what that results in, it's not even a result, what occurs when that happens. See, I'm still conditioned by this way of looking at it. <laughs> um, what that entails is a diminution in the right to privacy. And that diminution in the right, because it has been invaded, yeah. that is the wrong. Yeah. So the fact that you have lost out on your right becomes the harm, rather than uh, anything that seems consequent yeah. more tangibly measurable. Yeah. And so we could say that where is the harm that, that Sir Cliff Richard suffered? Well, it's in the loss of his privacy. And if we accept that what mm. happened is that there was some loss of privacy, then he has been harmed. Now, I, I raise this not because I think it's necessarily a desirable way for English tort law to go generally, and, and uh, Deshamaker uh, makes the point that really tort law ought to be coherent and follow one model or the other consistently, yeah. which uh, our, our law certainly does not. Um, but because this unipolar, this approach of conflating the wrongful act with the harm suffered is one that has gained traction in privacy law in this country in recent times. We saw it in the phone hacking litigation um, where uh, Mr. Justice Mann, same judge, um, conflated the hacking of people's phones with harm in terms of misuse of private information harm yeah. um, and said that what we are doing is compensating for that loss of privacy. Uh, if you're compensating for loss of privacy, you're not compensating for some separate harm consequent upon the loss of privacy. You're simply compensating for the loss of privacy and that is the unipolar model. So it seems to have gained some traction. Um, and the reason I raise the point is, since it's the same judge, I think it's entirely likely that uh, this is the way that uh, Manjay has conceptualized the harm in the Cliff Richard case, albeit it's not articulated uh, in those terms. It wasn't articulated in those conceptual terms in, in, in Galati, the phone hacking case either. Um, but But I suspect that that's, that's where he's coming from. Yeah. yeah well, it's very interesting that, uh, that you should mention the um, uh, Eric's uh, model there between the unipolar and the bipolar. And I have to say, when we look through the cases, we don't always see uniformity in this approach, as, as you say. You reminded me of um, the case of YXB and TMO, um, which is the, if you if you recall, this is the one that involved the footballer. Um, oh, there are lots of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is 2015. The, the footballer and uh, a woman meet at the Christmas party, uh, the club's Christmas party. Uh, he ends up um, in his hotel room um, with her. Uh, and and essentially, this is just a kiss and tell story, um, and uh, she doesn't want, um, sorry, he doesn't want this information to be published because he doesn't want his wife to find out. 
Now, what what makes it uh, particularly interesting, I think, when we talk about uh, the bipolar and the unipolar approach is that the court in that case, so this is Mr. Justice Warby, uh, definitely um, approaches it from a uh, bipolar um, perspective and in fact uh, is very unsympathetic to the to the notion that a harm has occurred. Um, and, and you see this when you look at the, the first paragraph of the decision, which, if I might quote it, um, says this. Uh, In the early hours of the 16th of December 2014, during a party at the home of a friend of the claimant, known in this case as Mr. X, the defendant performed oral sex on the claimant. They have never met again, but a month later the claimant initiated an exchange of messages between the two via their mobile phones in the course of which he wrote to her and she to him about having sex together. The claimant then sent the defendant explicit images, including photographs of his erect penis and a video of himself masturbating. She also sent him images, but nothing so intimate. Now, this is the first paragraph of the decision. Warby concludes there was no harm done to the privacy interest. There was no harm done to the claimant in this information being published. So clearly not applying the unipolar approach. And I think that raises a really interesting point that we might have almost accidentally stumbled on here, which is that there is a complete lack of consistency, particularly at the high court level, uh, in the way that privacy is conceptualized. Yeah. We have this cause of action. And for listeners who may not be familiar with the way in which doctrine of misuse of private information came into being, it appeared basically in 2004 in the case brought by Naomi Campbell against Mirror Group newspapers. Um, It seems to have evolved in some murky fashion that has never been satisfactorily explained out of the older doctrine of confidentiality. Um, And this has just been kind of broadly accepted by academics, practitioners and judges in the field without any detailed analysis, but that's just a hobby horse of mine. Um, In that context, we we see a doctrine that is, what, less than 15 years old, which in legal terms is infancy. Um, During that time, we would expect there to be a number of uh, matters that lack clarity. But I think it's striking that something so central to a doctrine of privacy as how do we conceptualize privacy has not been resolved. Mm. And it's leading the courts down really quite divergent paths. Um, And we see that strikingly when you compare, as just done there, the case of a footballer with the case of phone hacking with the case of Sir Cliff Richard. Um, 
significant differences, not only in the way that the courts are, are conceptualizing privacy, but as a result of that, in a way that they're dealing with the claims. Because some claims succeed and others do not. And there seems to be a, a divergence down that particular line. Yes, incredibly. And, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Tom, that this is jurisprudence now that's 15 years old, and yet there is still a sense of um, a, a, a lack of maturity on the not just the finer detail, but the key, the key issues, the key framework, the key analytical tools that the courts are to use to determine these cases. And there's still a sense, unfortunately, of intuition playing its part in these cases. Um, now, I've, I've talked in, in my work about my feeling that as soon as the court concludes that there is public interest expression at stake, that's the end of the decision-making process. They're going to find in favour of the publication, mm. which is not what Campbell test says, and it's also not what Campbell decided. I mean, in Campbell itself, the court accepted that there was public interest expression at stake in revealing the facts of Naomi Campbell attending Narcotics Anonymous meetings. The reason for this, and, and this was, of course, in one sense, this was a point that council concluded uh, for strategic reasons. The council accepted that, look, Naomi Campbell has given these interviews. She said she's not like other models because she doesn't take drugs. That was wrong. And the newspaper was entitled to set the public record straight. But the court said, OK, fine, even if we accept that as a matter of public interest, this new torch that we've created is still capable of protecting private information, irrespective of there being a public interest at stake in the information, because we think that the damage done to her outweighs the comparable value of dissemination of this information. But the problem is that in that decision, and in later decisions, the courts have never actually set out what the analytical tools are by which the courts are to make these judgments on the weight of the public interest expression. There's a lot of discussion about how we identify what counts as expression that's in the public interest. So notions like this public right not to be misled, freedom to criticize, etc., etc. But nothing to help the judge actually weigh the importance of that speech at stake and, and reach a decision upon it. Because the, the problem with the Balancing Act is it kind of presupposes in a way that we can, we can attach almost hypothetical numbers to the corresponding claims that we can say, well, this privacy case is a five out of 10 and the public interest case is a six out of 10 and therefore public interest in the expression succeeds. And I think, you know, in a way, I think we do have the analytical tools from cases like Murray to work out 
the strength of the privacy claim, albeit as we've identified, not always consistently applied. But there's just nothing in the case law that helps us with this second question of weighting the public interest at stake in the expression. You're absolutely right. And, and there's nothing in the case law either that really helps us to grapple with the, the problem of, of what we call incommensurability, which is that yeah. you know, it's one thing to attach a hypothetical number to the privacy claim and to the free speech claim. Um, but there is no reason to suppose whatsoever, and indeed every reason to suppose the opposite, that, um, that, that, that it's possible to weight these two on the same scale. Um, how many privacies are worth a free speech? Yeah. We, what we're really talking about here surely are two quite different currencies. Um, and it may not be possible to rank them on the same scale. Even if we are to do so, we're probably going to have to quite artificially construct a scale that imperfectly represents both um, in order to give us a metric by which we can do this. But likewise, there's no, there's no real um, effort to grapple with that in detail in the case law. So what we really see is you know, 15 years uh, into the existence of this doctrine without meaning to sound too negative or skeptical about it. We haven't worked out what privacy means. We haven't worked out how to balance privacy and free speech. We haven't worked out what sort of metric we might use to determine the relative weights of either of those interests, um, which are quite big challenges that remain or a doctrine of privacy. Yeah. Um, but bear in mind, of course, that when we developed the doctrine of negligence or general negligence in the early 20th century, it, it, it took 60, 70 years for us to have a clear shape of how to establish duties of care and negligence law um, that the courts felt comfortable with. And indeed, of course, uh, in Quite recent times, the Supreme Court has revisited uh, the test for duty of care and negligence and tried to clarify it. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure they have managed to clarify it, but they've had more to say on it. So even that's un not settled. And that's nearly 90 years after um, the seminal case of Donahue and Stevenson. So um, conclusions on privacy. Work to do, I think. Yeah. And, and, and just some, some sort of notes really on the work to do. I mean, there's... there's two things that sort of spring to mind. I mean, in one sense, actually what the courts have done, I think, is, although not formally, uh, they have abandoned the balancing approach. But what they have instead is this more digital uh, um, conception of the claim where they look at the information at stake and they parcel it up. And, and this happened in Campbell information got parceled up into five discrete types of information, one of which was mm. the fact of her being addicted uh, and attending Narcotics Anonymous, uh, the, the photographs involved, the fact that she was um, uh, having treatment at a particular location. So they, they, they sort of banded up all the information in, in this way, and then they went through the process and said, 
is there a public interest at stake? Yes or no? If yes, your claim on that aspect fails. If no, your claim succeeds. So that sort of way through, which in terms of development of the case law would mean a, a greater sort of intellectual honesty on the part of the court to say, actually, this balancing metaphor is wrong. We'll dispense with this. Um, and, and then it becomes a matter of just working out uh, how we divide the information up into categories. The other, although I don't think that's entirely satisfactory, at least it would give us a more sort of consistent approach. Um, the other aspect, and this is one that I've explored in, in my work and in, in, that, um, in the Journal of Media Law in 2015, is whether we can introduce the concept of coercion into the framework in order to say, actually, there will be circumstances where there's a public interest at stake, but the coercive nature of the expression is so problematic that it's right for the court to penalise the newspaper. So we get sort of that sense of proportionality brought in that way um, through the analytical tool of coercion. Now, that's not without difficulties, as we try and frame what coercion means in this sense. But at least it would better capture, I think, the sort of liberal tradition of distinguishing between persuasion and coercion. We'll do the news. Um, Paul, you had some news. Yes, I did. Um, so again, on the theme of privacy, uh, we learn in the uh, Telegraph that a uh, transgender lawyer has launched a transgender lawyer has launched the UK's first dead naming case. Uh, so dead naming is the act of um, revealing um, a person's uh, previous name uh, before they transitioned. Um, it's uh, an act of essentially deliberately misgendering someone, um, but also drawing attention um, to a person's uh, previous identity in a way that's designed to harm and distress uh, the person involved. Um, now, this is a really uh, interesting case, I think, because it raises a, a, a novel point of law, which is whether the act of dead naming is legally actionable. It's uh, a case that involved uh, or involves a lawyer called Stephanie Hayden, uh, who is suing uh, Graham uh, Lynham, the co-writer of uh, Father Ted. Um, so this will, um, will raise some interesting questions for the court to think about um, in relation to that first part of the Campbell test, the threshold test of whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy here. Mm, because the courts have previously held that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of one's name as, as such. Indeed, they've gone so far as to say there's no reasonable expectation of anonymity um, when you're dealing with, say, an anonymous uh, 
uh, an anonymous blog writer such as Nightjack. Um, I remember that case. Yeah. Author of a blog in Times Newspapers a few years ago in front of Mr. Justice Eady, um, where there's there's no reasonable expectation of anonymity on the internet, apparently. Yeah. Um, and this is this is. I mean, I, I don't actually imagine it's an authority that's going to be relevant to this case, but now we've got issues of identity bound up in it. Yeah. The decision to use one name rather than a previous name and to not have that uh, earlier name uh, brought up again mm. are intimately connected with gender identity yeah. in the case of uh, transgender people. So, and, and that gender identity is an aspect of private life and autonomy and all those things we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um it's interesting you mentioned the Nightjack case. I mean, there, the the person's identity gave credibility to the information that they were disseminating. So this was the person who was the uh, police officer who was ostensibly exposing um, at least malpractice in the police force, but possibly also corruption, if I remember correctly. Um, and there, Mr. Justice Eady was satisfied that, well, he was satisfied. I wasn't satisfied with his decision, but he was satisfied that actually identity was relevant to the contribution that the blog made to popular discussion. And that in order to be effective, uh, one needed to know the actual identity of who was speaking somewhat presupposes that Nightjack was not a successful blog beforehand. I just wasn't satisfied with that because that's not what misuse of private information is about. Um, I mean, it was it was clear to, to my mind that the, the revelation of the identity was harmful uh, in any sense of the, the word. It wasn't problematic to see how it would be harmful. Um, but... And so I think as much as I, I admire Mr. Justice Eady's decisions, that, that's the one that I admire the least. It's the one that attracts criticism from the, the pro-privacy side of the spectrum, isn't it? Okay, so uh, there's the case against uh, Graham Linen. Um, I have a piece of news, which is a slightly different piece of news uh, from your normal news items, uh, which is that uh, I got a book the other day through the post um, in the way that as academics every so often receive unsolicited copies of books um, from publishers uh, that they think might be relevant to the work we're doing. Um, and it's Mark Tushnet's uh, new book uh, on freedom of expression. It's called Advanced Introduction to Freedom of Expression. Uh, Mark Tushnet is professor at Harvard. Um, and it's pitched, I think, at both students of law and of journalism, um, possibly at practitioners who have an interest in those fields, maybe early stages in their career. Um, I actually think it's going to be of more use to students of journalism, perhaps postgraduate students of journalism who've not looked into theories of free speech before, or perhaps those who are not familiar with 
some of the more abstract debates about how theories of the importance of free speech intersect with legal regulatory mechanisms um, in respect of the media and in respect of individuals. It's uh, it's a short book, which uh, is good for a number of reasons. You can blast through it quickly. It's just over 100 pages. It's light on legal doctrine, which is why I don't think it's going to be a, a primary resource for law students. There just isn't enough law in it. Uh, but that does make it comprehensible, particularly uh, for non-lawyers. Um, where there is doctrine, a lot of it is uh, focused on the United States, um, which is understandable. Mark Tushnet is professor of uh, constitutional law in the US. Um, what I think it does best is that it, it points up key problems for the legal regulation of speech, and it gives us a framework to understand those problems. Tushnet draws a, a, a distinction between what he calls a categorical approach to dealing with uh, clashes between free speech and other rights or interests. And that's an approach that he associates primarily with American law. Uh, and on the other hand, a proportionality approach, which he associates more with European legal systems. And I think that's actually very interesting because what we've been talking about today uh, that framework has relevance to it. When uh, earlier um, you were talking about the way in which the Campbell, the judges in the Campbell case, packaged up different aspects of Naomi Campbell's private life, yeah. they did so in a kind of categorical way. They decided, well, this is a high-level privacy claim. This bit is a le lower-level privacy claim. This bit is a, a non-starter as a privacy claim rather than taking the more broad brush proportionality approach we tend to associate with European style jurisprudence. Um, so that I, 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 th I think is a real strength of uh, the book. Um, it does necessarily oversimplify the legal position in the jurisdictions um, upon which it dwells. Uh, Tushnet is quite open about the fact the book is going to do that because it is short, because it is introductory. Um, I do think that the account it gives of law um, makes law come across as uh, quite formal, it's a formalistic uh, entity, um, which by which I mean it, it gives the impression uh, that the legal rules that are laid down, that the judgments we come to in cases are clear and readily understandable, um, which if one, is to, if one studies law in any great detail and studies legal theory in any great detail, one starts to see that that is not actually the way that, that, that the law is. Um, but that is part of the necessary simplification. So there's just a note of caution there to anyone who's, who's, who's uh, thinking of reading it. One also gets the impression, reading it, that the categorical approach is preferred over the proportionality approach. There's quite a lot of scepticism sounding in the book about the success of the European-style proportionality approach. Mm -hmm. But I think, broadly speaking, the book is written quite neutrally, and it does point up the relationship between 
how we conceptualize free speech, how we conceptualize good governance and particular problems of responding to clashes between free speech and other rights or other interests, whether those are privacy rights, whether those are media plurality interests, whether they are government's interest in maintaining good order and security and so forth. So all in all, I think it's a potentially useful read, particularly, I'd say, for uh, master's level journalism students or even uh, journalists uh, who, whilst now out there and doing their journaling, um, are interested in reading a little bit more about the ways in which legal systems generally could respond to uh, issues of freedom of expression. So that is Advanced Introduction to Freedom of Expression by Mark Tushnet, uh, which is published by Edward Elgar and uh, costs £15.95. So I believe there is a sale on as we go to uh, record this on the internet. All right. Well, I think that will do for today. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, we are available on SoundCloud iTunes and Spotify. So do subscribe, do tell your friends about us, help us to spread the word uh, if you can. Uh, you can follow the Media Law Podcast on Twitter at Media Law Podcast uh, for all our latest news. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. This episode of the Media Law Podcast featured Tom Bennett, City University of London, and Paul Ragg, University of Leeds. The episode was made possible by funding from both institutions.